and away. Bob Mortimer. Preface. Welcome to my book. It contains all of the stories from my life that came to mind during its writing. Some of these memories are clearer than others. Where there are gaps in my remembering, I've tried to fill them in as best I can using my knowledge of myself and the people involved. My guess is that around 90% of the content is true and reliable. In a couple of the chapters, I have left it to the reader to decide which stories are the truth and which are lies. The book contains very little opinion or advice, which I hope you will agree is a good thing. There is one piece of advice, though, that I feel is worth stating before you commence. Always enter your shoes before wearing them. Part 1 in which I tell the tale of my early life and adventures, framed within the intriguing story of a brush with mortality and laziness. 1. October 2015 In every dream home a heartache, and every step I take, takes me further from heaven. Roxy Music, 1971 I am 56 years old. My life is trundling along like a podgy golden retriever being dragged along the pavement by an indifferent owner. I wake up in my bed to the distant sound of a building site and the click, click, drip of the central heating system. I sleep on a thick memory foam mattress so there is always a certain stickiness to my risings. The undersheet clings to my back as I sit up then floats back to its base as if giving out a sigh of relief. My knees click along with the radiators as I make my way to the bathroom. I look in the mirror and see before me a face like a puddle of spaghetti hoops, bloated, creased and tired. I'm always tired. No amount of sleep can shift the massive ball of pure weariness that has lodged itself to the rear of my eyes. I get very breathless at any exertion. I put it down to my age and the years of smoking. I have tried to quit in the past but have never been able to manage more than five hours without a cigarette. Maybe next year. I am about to embark on a month-long tour of the UK with my comedy partner, Jim Moyer, whom you may know as Mr Vic Reeves. It is an anniversary tour marking 30 years since we first stepped on stage together. There will be energetic, sometimes aquatic, singing, athletic and handsome dancing, and tight little bundles of concentrated slapstick. I need to get myself into some sort of recognisable shape, but the tour starts in three weeks. I decide to do some staircase exercise nonsense. You know, up and down at a discernible pace, and stepping on and off the bottom step at various approximate speeds. But before that, I wimbrel into the kitchen and cook myself a full-ish English breakfast. Beans near and not on toast. A fried egg. Three rashers of back bacon. Fried mushrooms and tomatoes. I wash it all down with a mug of tea containing five sugars and then suck hard on a wonderful post-baked bean cigarette. That's better. Then to the stairs. I hate exercise. I curse the inventor of exercise and all his disciples. I turn my back towards shops that sell exercise equipment. 
I send moonlight shivers to each and every jogger that has forced me to walk through their sweaty pavement haze. Exercise is my nemesis. I would rather clean a 747 jumbo jet using a mouse's eye patch than exercise. I run up the two flights and back down again. I repeat times ten. I get clammy and my mind turns towards the dreary. I can't do it. It's just too unpleasant a way to spend even two minutes of your life. Out of breath, I slump onto my sofa with another cup of tea and another five sugars and draw heavily on my second cigarette of the day. That's when I feel it. A sharp, but not really significant pain, just behind the lower sweep of my left rib cage. It's gone almost as soon as it came. No big deal. I finish my cigarette, get up from the sofa, and there it is again. My immediate thought is that it is what my mum would have called a cold on your chest. Have a mug of bovril, sit with your coat on, and sweat it out, she would say, with a fag in her mouth. But with my tour coming up, I think it's best to phone the GP and get an appointment. I book in to see him later that day. My doctor is a lovely, caring man called Bob Bowes. I always enjoy going to see him, not least because in the corner of his consultation room he has the lowest sink I have ever seen. I reckon it stands about two and a half feet off the ground. I've asked him if it is specifically for children. He says not. I've asked him if the person who fitted it was particularly small and fixed its height according to his requirements. He says not. I've asked him if its height gives it a specific medical use or advantage. He says not. I've asked him if it is made of lead and sinking into the ground. He says not. I've asked him if he's ever considered employing a sink razor to sort it out. He says not. I sense he is never going to tell me. I suppose it's his sink. And if he's happy with it, then that's all I really need to know. I've learned to mind my own business when it comes to preferred sink heights. I tell him about the little pain behind my rib and he listens to my chest with his stethoscope. He doesn't like whatever he's hearing and says that I need my heart checked. It's a bit of a shock, but the pain is so minimal that I'm not really worried. However, with the tour imminent, he arranges for me to see a cardiologist a couple of days later. The following night, I take the train up to London with my partner Lisa to see the band Squeeze at the Royal Albert Hall. We meet up with Matt Berry and my long-time TV producer guru, Lisa Clark. I sit next to Matt for the show. I have always adored Squeeze and will always adore Matt. He's funny, polite, unassuming, a musical and comedic frontrunner. When he laughs, his face beams with pure joy. He's got a great big beard and a great big heart. A lovely night is had by all. Matt loves a bit of gossip and is quite ruthless in his assessments of other players in the comedy world. Matt, the wonderful Reese Shearsmith and I occasionally meet up for drinks in London. They are strictly gossip-only evenings, 
our favourite topic always being which of our contemporaries are currently sitting around the dining table at the Lucky Club. The next day, I visit the cardiologist, where electrical wires are attached to my chest while I run at my fullest, most athletic pelt on a running machine for eight long minutes. This procedure is known as the treadmill stress test. Its purpose is to assess how well your circulatory system and heart are performing when you put it under some pressure. The test is easy. The worst part is the removal of the wires that are attached using sticky little pads. I have a middling to gross amount of chest hair and suffer terribly from anticipatory pain fret. I don't think all nurses enjoy this torturing, but I suspect a few do. The results of my test are printed out and are laid on the cardiologist's table when I enter his office. No sink. He explains to me that the test is very much a screening exercise and not a diagnostic tool, but that nevertheless it does indicate a possible narrowing of the arteries surrounding my heart. Probable worst case scenario is that I might have to have a few stents inserted into the more seriously blocked pipes to open them up and allow the blood to flow freely. I'm told it's an outpatient procedure and you can go back to work in a couple of days. Will I still be able to go on tour with Jim? I ask. Yes, absolutely. He explains that the next step is for me to have an aneogram at the local hospital. This involves having a catheter inserted into an artery in my wrist or groin. I choose the wrist. A special dye will be passed through the catheter and x-ray images of my arteries as the dye explores all the avenues and alleyways surrounding my heart. It's all about discovering how strong the blood flow is and whether there is any narrowing. If there are any dangerous blockages, then stents will be inserted during the aneogram. I arrange to have the procedure in a couple of days' time. I'm not worried. After all, my good friend Paul Whitehouse has had a couple of stents inserted, and he's still as magnificent as he ever was. I quite like hospitals. They have such a purposeful vibe. In the past, I've had jobs in the civil service and local government and hated the general malaise that permeated those institutions. Due, I suspect, to the lack of real sense of purpose or direction. The ever-present nagging feeling that you are achieving absolutely nothing. Whereas a hospital is a full-on, in-your-face achievement factory. The room where the aneogram is administered is like the cockpit of a 1980s movie spaceship. A lot of serious looking kits and a lot of silent medical personnel attending to their roles with precision and quiet calm. For the first time, I am scared. I can feel the catheter as it travels up my arm and into my chest. The dye it releases feels cold and alien as it flushes through my arteries. The sharp, cold squirrelling around my chest is taking much longer than I expected. I can sense that the surgeon is not happy with what he is seeing, and I feel the mood change in the room. The procedure is halted for a while, and out of the corner of my eye I can see the surgeon in the adjacent control room. I think he is speaking to someone on the phone. I sense the beginnings of dread and panic in my ample stomach. 
He returns and tells me he is going to try a procedure to help the catheter penetrate my pipes. I know not what he did or what tools were employed, but I am suddenly hit with a massive bolt of electricity in my chest. It raises me up off the slab, then hits me again. I have never experienced such pain in my life. It feels like a tiny hippo has snuck into my heart and is having the largest yawn it can muster while trying to escape using an ice pick. I'm silently begging for him to stop, but he delivers three or four more hippo bolts, and then it is over. It would seem that either the procedure has been completed or abandoned. I'm wheeled out and my gurney is placed under a large set of open tread stairs. A wandering inpatient it recognises me and comes over to say hello. He thinks I will be fine because I've been on the telly. Then the surgeon arrives in my little understairs den and I can immediately tell from his face that it is not good news. He sombrely explains that the blockages in my arteries are too advanced and in such awkward places that they cannot be stunted. I will have to undergo open heart surgery and have a number of my arteries bypassed. He will try and find a bed for me as soon as possible. Will I have to cancel my tour? Yes, definitely. Strange that my work should be the first thing on my mind. That will change very soon indeed. I am wheeled back to my reception room where my wife has been waiting. I give her the thumbs down motion and like a watery fig, tears form in my eyes. I telephone Jim from my gurney and explain what's happened and that the tour will have to be cancelled. Jim seems a bit shell-shocked, not because of the aborted tour, but that out of the blue I should be so ill. I apologise profusely. I have subsequently, of course, found that heart surgery is not that big a deal at all. Though complicated and requiring incredible skill, the procedure is bordering on the routine these days. Perhaps it's because of my age that the fear is so intense. When I was young, open heart surgery was in its infancy and was viewed more as life-extending than life-saving. To my generation, the mention of open heart surgery has the whiff of death about it. I arrive home and my body feels different. I am suddenly aware of every single beat of my heart, every little muscle movement in my chest, and every little jump and rumble from my stomach. I can feel and hear my heartbeat in my ears, in my brain and in my imagination. The consultant had explained that some of my arteries were as much as 95 to 98% blocked. How long would it take for that last 2% to close up? Should I remain completely still? Will I be spending the rest of my life stood staring out of my window, watching parcels being delivered to neighbours? Will I be making a special occasion out of bin day, when the street action is at its most vibrant? What should my heart rate be? How do I stop my heart from racing with fear of what lies ahead? Am I going to die? I phone the consultant and tell him I can't cope. He's heard it all before and gives me a prescription of Valium to see me through to the operation. He doesn't accuse me of being as pathetic as an abandoned dishcloth, but I can kind of tell that that's what he's thinking. I am strangely reassured. After the aneogram, my world became tiny. 
All it contained was my home, my partner Lisa, and thoughts of my two sons, Harry and Tom. I thought nothing about work or the world outside, my four walls. I went to the kitchen to make a cup of tea. My mind started to focus on all the little trinkets and frau frau that usually went unnoticed and unthanked in my kitchen. My favourite mug, my favourite egg cup, the teaspoon with the long bent handle, the tea towel we bought on holiday, the mat that my cat slept on, the picture of me and Lisa in Paris when we first met. All of them made me feel incredibly sad and I burst into tears. I hadn't felt this vulnerable for a long time, not since 1970 when I was 11 years old.